0: In the vine, um, and it's as we're walking through really one of Jesus' last times with his disciples that he spends a large amount of time uh, sharing with his, his disciples um, his heart for us, his heart for the world, um, and how we ought to move forward as we know that he is coming to depart. Um, so we're going to be in John 14 verses 15 through 31 tonight uh, this morning, and if you have a Bible that you picked up as you came in, it'll be on page five. 86, And we're going to start uh, together by reading the passage. And in, in honor of the Lord's word, uh, I ask you guys to all stand with me um, as we read this morning from John 15. John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever And he who loves me will be loved by the Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word, and the word that you hear is not mine but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away, and I will not be with you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming; he has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. You guys may be seated. So, what is the best gift? that you have ever received in life. Some of you guys maybe have to go back to when you're really little and just nostalgia about that gift that your parents gave you or a friend gave you. Or for some of you guys, it's a much more recent um, experience. I can say one of the, one of the best gifts uh, I ever got is the nostalgia aspect. And I was 13 years old um, and it was Christmas. My parents, at this point, we didn't have tons of money, and so you, you never really knew exactly what Christmas had in store. Uh, but I remember seeing a big box, and my name was on it. And usually big boxes are, oh, you're like, oh, this is going to be a good gift because it's a big gift. And so I remember we always waited till the very end for the last gift. It was the big one. And so I remember opening it, and it was an Xbox. And now we're like Xbox Ones, and there's like 15 other Xboxes. But at that point, the Xbox was like the pinnacle of my existence. <clears throat> I was so excited that I spent hours on hours just playing my Xbox and, and inviting my brother to play with me. And I was like, kind of like, oh, you got a credit gift, but I got an Xbox. And so time went on, and I played and played, and I had LAN parties with friends and would invite people over and bought all the different games. But like with most gifts... As time went on, the Xbox just wasn't, wasn't as cool anymore. It's kind of something that, that I forgot about uh, to where it just ended up being put in, on a shelf or, or put in a box that ends up in our garage that now when I go to my parents' house every once in a while, my brother and I, we pulled out for just the nostalgia effect of like, oh, let's go play really ghetto games that have bad graphics. You see, this morning... We're going to look at what I believe to be the greatest gift that God has ever given us. And that's the Holy Spirit. But you see, like my Xbox, I think the Holy Spirit is, is someone that we often forget about. That we just kind of put, put into a box or put into a corner. We know he exists, but oh, I'll just kind of pull him out, I guess, when I need him or, or when I come on a Sunday and we talk about him. You see, there's a reason Francis Chan wrote a book about the Holy Spirit called The Forgotten God. Because a lot of times we, we forget. We're like, oh, I know God and I know Jesus, and there's some other thing because there's the Trinity, and so there's three of them. But we so often don't live in the realm of, of the Holy Spirit being active and alive in our life. And so this morning, the heart is to really spend time refreshing ourselves and reminding ourselves of the true gift of the Holy Spirit the gift that God has given us, a gift that we we never, ever will lose. This morning, the hope is that we leave encouraged because the Spirit is our comfort and our conviction that fosters our love and obedience for Jesus. In today's text, it comes on the heels of Jesus telling his disciples that he's going to be leaving. And again, we're somebody that we know the whole story. We we've, we've read the gospels and so we understand that Jesus is saying like, "Yeah, I I have to leave for the cross." But but as a first-century Jew that is hanging out with Jesus day in and day out, this makes no sense to them. And so when Jesus says stuff like, "I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of the world is coming." They're confused. They're struggling. They don't they don't want him to leave. And so even in this comfort section Jesus gives them a little bit of a, a rebuke. In verse 28 he says you have heard me say to you I'm going away and I will come to you. Yet if you loved me you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. So Jesus even starts by talking to the disciples saying hey I'm leaving. But but I told you where I'm going. I told you that I'm going to the Father. And you should actually be excited that should be enough reason to be okay, to be content, to not let your heart be troubled. He says that's enough reason for joy. But I also know if you guys are reading this text and, and looking at it at all, there's a weird phrase in there that I think is important to note out. He says the Father is greater than I. And again, we believe in a, tri, a Trinitarian God that's three parts, this Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That three make one. And so when Jesus makes a statement of, well, God is greater than I, if you're anything like me, you take a step back and are kind of confused by that. Yet it's important to note that by no means is Jesus saying in this moment that he is a lesser God than God the Father. This statement has nothing to do with the ontology or kind of the, the essence of being of Jesus or of God. I think the best way to kind of explain this is to use more terms and people that we that we understand, and obviously you guys know today's the Super Bowl and Patriots versus Eagles, and so if I were to make the statement, Tom Brady is greater than I. Nobody in this room would be like, "Oh, what Davey's saying is that Tom Brady's a a greater greater human, is more human than Davey. You wouldn't think that, but you'd probably be like, oh, well, Tom Brady's greater than Davey in wealth, probably in influence, definitely in athletic ability, like just the list could go on and on. Chuckles, okay, that's rude. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You haven't seen me play football. And so you see the heart behind this for Jesus is he's not saying, hey, the father is greater than I in being, but rather I think D.A. Carson Explains this super well, and you will have a slide on the screen that says this. He says, if Jesus' disciples truly loved him, they would be glad that he's returning to his father, for he is returning to the sphere where he belongs, to the glory he had with the father before the world began, to the place where the father is undiminished in glory, unquestionably greater than the son is in his incarnate state. See, Jesus is very much still saying, Hey, I am one with God, but but I'm still in human form, and I get to go up to where I belong in the heavens, sitting at the right hand of my Father. And so as Jesus leaves, he continues though to use that language that Josh talked about last week of let not your hearts be troubled. He says, Don't let them be afraid. But but why? He says, I'm leaving. And I know you're struggling with that, but you don't have to be troubled. Why is that? Jesus makes it clear in this text. He says, you don't have to be afraid because we, as believers, get to receive the Spirit of God. Or as in this text, he says, the helper. Or in other translations, it would say the counselor or the advocate. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. Jesus is saying, hey, take comfort. The spirit is coming. Take comfort. The spirit is coming. And it's important to note that that this spirit that Jesus is talking about is specific for those that believe in Jesus, that love Jesus, He makes it very clear that the world cannot receive the Spirit because it doesn't see the Spirit or know the Spirit. So what is the benefit of the Spirit of God? Why does Jesus say, hey, it's okay that I'm leaving because I'm sending another helper? First and foremost, we see in verse 17 that the benefit of the Spirit, how he brings us comfort, is that he will be with us. It says, you will know him for he will dwell with you and will be in you. And this truth right here, that the spirit of God will be in you, should literally radically blow your mind. I mean, you should literally have your mouth on the floor, every single one of you, because of how profound this statement is. We have to remember that Jesus' audience is first century Jews, And so for them, when they hear the Spirit of God, when they hear that, they automatically think of the Holy of Holies. Which is a room within the temple that only a priest can go into. And not only is he a priest, but he's the high priest. So the priest among priests. And he can go in there for one day out of the whole year. To go into the presence of God. And not only that, but when he would go in there, they would usually tie a rope around him. Because they're like, hey, there's a good chance he might actually die while he's in the presence of God. And so we got to make sure we can pull him out because we can't go into the room. And so they're saying this God, the God, the Holy of Holies, that God is coming to live within you. Like the God of the universe is living within you. Like look at how profound that statement is. And there's a huge beauty to that statement as well, because if we know that the God of the universe, he says, is coming to live within us forever, then that speaks to those that are broken and those that are hurting from loneliness. If you're here today and struggling with feeling alone or or feeling like the outcast, for the college student that's left home left everything they know to come to this university, to maybe be in a dorm room where they don't really know the person they're living with and struggling to find community, feeling like you're one face and 500 in a classroom. Or for the person in their mid-20s or 30s, that again, Corvallis is not always the most welcoming place because you're like old at the age of 25. (laughs) And you struggle with finding community and feeling alone. Or for the stay-at-home mom that's like, I love my children, but I'm stuck with my children 24-7, and I want to try to find some community outside of that. You see, we all understand loneliness. I think we all go through seasons of this. And that's what's so encouraging about this text and so encouraging about the Spirit is, he says, hey, I'm right here. I'm with you, and I'm never going to leave you. So Jesus, the Spirit, can speak in to your loneliness this very day. We just have to open our eyes to realize that, hey, the Spirit isn't in some shelf or some box, but he's literally right here. We also get to see how Jesus, or how the Spirit brings us comfort, uh, because kind of through him we actually get to see Jesus. There's so much language in this text of this unity and this picture of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and some of it is messy as we're trying to understand how do all three intermix. But in verse 20, he says, in that day, and he's speaking about the ascension, so after he raises from the dead and then goes up to join his Father, he says, after that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. See, when the Spirit leaves, I mean, when Jesus leaves, the Spirit actually helps us see Jesus, see Jesus within our our own lives and see Jesus at the world around us. And then lastly, the Spirit teaches us and helps us remember the words of Jesus. In verse 26, he says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. And in verse 17, we see that he says he is the spirit of truth. And so not only is the spirit of God residing within you, and that can bring joy and hope in the midst of loneliness, but he also is the spirit of truth that will speak directly to you to be that guide of truth, to be that counselor that helps you actually remember the very things that Jesus has said. And this is so profound, especially for those in the first century Because the Spirit is going to come to help them actually understand what Jesus has said, to make sense of the resurrection, to actually write the very words that come on these pages. What very makes up the words of the Bible is the Spirit helps guide them in that. And the Spirit helps guide us today to understand that that is true, that that is noble, that that is worthy, that that is of Jesus. You see, the Spirit gives us confidence in the gospel. The Spirit helps us love and obey Jesus. Yet it's important to note that when Jesus mentions the Holy Spirit coming, when he says, hey, my Father will send another helper, another advocate, another counselor, it comes with an if statement before that. Where Jesus makes a profound statement, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He actually says some version of this four times within this section. You can see all the different references up on the screen. But in 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And then kind of the inverse of it, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So the question is, what does this say about your relationship with Jesus? What does this say about you? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? As you look at this and you say, okay, if my love for Jesus equals my obedience, my following of his commands, where does that put me at? We tend to fall into what I believe is two different camps as we respond to this question. One kind of being those that are licentious and those that are legalistic. The first one of those that are licentious um, its truly really this idea we don't actually really care about the commands of God. We don't really care about his words. And I don't think we would ever just come out and say, oh yeah, what Jesus said I actually don't care about. But when we look at how we live our lives, that's ultimately what our lives are saying. We use this mantra of of love wins and allow that to mean, hey, anything I do outside of that, like it's all good because love wins in the end. You see, we take Paul's statement in Romans where he says, should we sin more so that grace may abound all the more? And we're like, yep, let's do that. We take the opposite of what the heart is of the message. You see, love God but don't care about his commands, how does that actually go together? That's like me saying, oh, I love Anna, but anytime she asks me to do something or tells me to do something, I'm like, no, I'm good, thanks. You'd be like, what? You love her, but you don't do anything for her? That doesn't make any sense. Yet so often when it comes to our relationship with God, we we do that. And within this category, you might be A, the person that's like, hey, I don't actually believe in Jesus. So why would I I follow his commands when I don't even see a need to love him? And if you're here this morning and you're in that boat, like keep wrestling through what this text is saying and keep wrestling through what we spend Sunday after Sunday talking about. Because you don't have to be stuck in the spot of, hey, I don't actually need to love God or I don't need to understand his commands because God is actually inviting you into the most loving relationship you can ever be a part of he's inviting you into a relationship that you get to embrace again the god of the universe coming within you and through that you'll start to understand what love actually looks like what following his commands is not a burden but it's free you see if you're here this morning and you're like i don't know jesus Jesus wants you to know him. He wants to be within you. He wants that experience. He wants that unity. But for others of you, you're like, hey, I I love Jesus. You know, maybe it's I prayed a prayer when I was four years old. Or maybe it's, yeah, I I love Jesus, but my actions don't reflect that. I really challenge you to think through what your relationship with God actually looks like. Because if we make that statement of I love Jesus... But I'm not actually doing anything he asks of me. It seems like we're actually abusing the love of Jesus. That God is full of grace and so my actions don't matter is just a a lie. Like our actions do matter. God is graceful. But why would we take advantage of the most loving relationship we have? God even gives examples of this through, through his scripture where you look at one of the minor prophets named Hosea, where God tells Hosea to actually go and marry a prostitute named Gomar. And the whole story is this messy cycle of Hosea saying, hey, I'm going to love this woman with all that I have, all that I am. And Gomar comes for a season and loves him and then just runs back to her ways. then comes back and then runs away constantly, this repetitive cycle. And God was speaking to the Israelites at that time, but directly speaking to us as well. that's, That's not his design. That's not the healthy way for us to say, hey, I come to God every once in a while and then just run away and live a licentious life. God calls us to something far better. We need a bigger view of Jesus. A bigger view of his love for us. Or even if we look at our own lives, we can all think of relationships we have with people. We feel like it's friendships that they simply just abuse our love for them. That time and time and time again, they take advantage of us and they hurt us, but they know that we're going to come back. And though we might come back time and time again, we know the toll it takes on our relationship. We know the weightiness that, that, that we feel when we have that friend that really just hurts us. And we don't like that. We don't want that. Yeah, then so often we go to God and we say, hey, I'm that friend to you. Like I use and abuse. But God's calling us to something better. Or you might be completely in the other camp, and on the opposite side of things. Where you're like, I don't struggle with this licentious aspect, but I actually struggle with caring more about the commands of God than the love of God. We kind of reverse it and we say, Instead of, I love, therefore I I obey, we say, I obey, therefore I love. Within this mindset, we often begin to think, if we obey him, then he will love us. If we obey him, then, then he will love us. Yet we see that keeping God's command is not the same as actually loving God. They're actually very different. See, we can actually live out of the love of God. We can't live out of the love of God because in this mindset of an illegalistic mindset, which I can be honest is where I so often find myself, is it becomes a relationship of guilt and shame as you try to live up to these commands and then fail. And try to live up to these commands again and then fail. But God's not saying, hey, You have to do my commands, and then I'll love you. But he says, hey, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. It's the reverse. It's out of a love and an affection for Jesus that leads to an obedience of Jesus. Yet those that fall into the legalistic category, we just get that flipped. We become so focused on the work aspect of life that we actually miss out on the love aspect of a relationship. Our relationship can so often be based based on fear. Our obedience isn't based on love, but it's actually based on being afraid of God and afraid of what might happen if I fail Him. We view God as the abusive person that we don't want to disappoint. Yet we know God is anything but an abusive Father. He's not that person in our lives. He's a loving father. He's the father that after you've walked away or after you've tried to live a perfect life, he still has his, own, his arms open. In both situations, and says, hey, come. Come to the feast. Come celebrate. So I encourage you to examine yourself. Which camp do you fall into? Are you taking advantage of God's love and in turn actually missing out on the true love of Jesus, are you missing out on the beauty of obedience? Or are you so focused on the commands of God that you still are missing out on the love of God? And that's the crazy thing about both of these is whether you're living a licentious life and saying, hey, I don't care about the commands or you're living a legalistic life and you're like, all I care about is the commands. Both of those are still missing out on the beauty of God and the beauty of this love relationship that he has with you. I mean, he uses the imagery of him being the groom and us being the bride for a specific reason to help us understand the beauty of this love relationship that ought to exist between us and our God. You see, this is, this is weighty. This is, this is heavy. Because if we're honest with ourselves... We can't be like, oh, I fully and wholly love God with all that I am all the time. If we look at our lives and, and we look to Jesus and we say, okay, am I following your commands? We can't say yes all the time. See, because if you miss the mark once, no matter how close or how far, you still missed the mark. Yet the beauty of this passage and the beauty of Jesus, the beauty of the gospel, is he doesn't leave you there. He doesn't say, hey, good luck, you're failing. But instead, we even see in this very passage, that when Jesus is leaving, what does he say? He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Like, that's the heart. He says, don't let your heart be troubled and don't be afraid. But why or how? See, Jesus shows us that we are able to love Him by obeying Him. And Jesus shows us that true love leads to obedience. And this is magnified on the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, the cross is the perfect example of what love filled obedience looks like. Perfect example. In verses 30 through 31, he says, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. What he's saying is he's saying Satan is coming. That's the ruler of the world. He is coming. But Jesus makes it clear. He says, hey, though he is coming, he has no claim on me which is such a beautiful powerful statement satan has no claim on jesus and jesus says earlier in chapter 8 of, of john he says i'm not of this world satan has maybe dominion and power and is the prince or the king of this world but jesus says i'm not of this world he has no claim on my life yet what does jesus do it's on his own accord and his own willingness he says but but I'm still, I'm still gonna go to the cross. Though Satan has no claim on my life, I'm still going to go to the cross. And I think a lot of times if you grow up in church, we we'll understand hey, Jesus went to the cross to die on our behalf so that we could be made right, to have a right relationship with God, which is holistically true. But yet, the beauty of this passage is when we look at it and see why did Jesus go to the cross? Jesus says, what I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. So not only did Jesus go for us, but Jesus also said, I went so that I could show what love for the Father actually looks like by following through on what he's asked me to do. And this already aligns to what Jesus has said. This will be on the screen in John 10. He says, for this reason, the Father loves me because I laid down my life then I may give it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down in my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. He uses continual language throughout John of saying, hey, I'm following through on what my Father has asked me. I'm here to do the will of my Father. So Jesus says he's going to the cross to show what love and obedience actually looks like. He uses this beautiful language of prior to this verse, Jesus, when he talks about the world, he says the world can neither see, neither receive, or know the Spirit. You see, they're completely blind. And then we get to the end of this this section, and here he says, so that the world may know. And that is the beauty of love and obedience intertwined is that the blind world gets to see the love of Jesus, gets to know the love of Jesus through love and obedience in the form of a cross. It's very much how we get to make Jesus known to this world, to a blind world, this love and obedience that God has called us into. The cross is so powerful because we really see that obedient love is so powerful that even the blind world will get to see Jesus and what Jesus' love for the Father looks like. Jesus was the ultimate example of showing us what obedience, obedient love looks like. He loved the Father so much that he willingly went to the cross that he said, I'm going to follow through on what you've asked me to do because of love. Yet not only is Jesus the perfect example for us of what loving obedience looks like, but through this ultimate form of love and obedience, he's actually given us the ability to love and obey God. You see, as we kind of walk through this last section, we got stuck at the end of, well, what What does this mean for us? Because I'm either living a licentious life of I don't really care about the commands, or I'm so focused on the commands that I'm missing out on the love piece. This is where Jesus ultimately steps into that gap and says, hey, I'm the missing piece. The reason you can love and obey God is because Jesus loved and obeyed God. Jesus going to the cross is the acceptable sacrifice so that, yeah, when we do fail in specific categories, grace does come in. That Jesus says, hey, I took their place. I took their place. And what's so interesting is the cross is essential for the Holy Spirit to actually come. For the Holy Spirit to actually take up residence within us. In chapter 16, as Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I am going. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Like what a beautiful picture of not only Jesus' love for his father, but Jesus' love. For us, and the true magnitude and beauty of the cross is without the cross, we wouldn't have the Spirit. And we know that through this text, the Spirit's one of his roles is to be the Spirit of truth, to make known and make clear and remind us of what Jesus has said. The Spirit plays a pivotal role in helping us actually love Jesus because it's through the Spirit that we're reminded of the commands and the words of Jesus. You see, the cross is not only a sign of love and obedience, but it's also a sign of grace. Grace for the believer. The beauty is that Jesus never missed the mark. He never failed in loving God wholly, and he always obeyed him fully. And now Jesus sends us his spirit to align our hearts to God. To remember what Jesus has said to us so that we can actually obey and love God. You see, Jesus comes and dies that death, sends us the spirit to center us on what loving God actually looks like, what obeying God looks like, and the beauty of the marriage relationship between the two. It becomes clear that you can't have one without the other. You can't have love without obedience. You can't have obedience without love. To have the full understanding of what this relationship looks like. And this is what God is calling us into this morning. Do you not see the greatest gift that God has ever given us in sending us his spirit? We literally have the God of the universe residing within us. So my question is, have you forgotten about the Spirit? Have you forgotten about the one living inside of you? Is he a blessing in your life? For some of you in this room, he's he's in a box or he's high up on the shelf. I encourage you this morning to go and grab that gift. To take him out of the box or take him off the shelf and embrace him for the relationship that he is. Take him out and experience what love and obedience is supposed to look like. A whole rich relationship with God. May we not lose sight of the greatest gift we have ever been given. That God has literally given us Himself. And through His Spirit, we get that comfort and that conviction that ultimately fosters a true love and obedience for Jesus. And I love how, how John in, or how Jesus ends this section. Um, and I'm going to end the same way because it has this powerful kind of battle cry feel to it. Um, As I talked with Josh about my text this week, uh, we both had the mindset um, of thinking of an epic movie, The Braveheart, and at the end where he just screams out freedom. As he goes to his death, knowing that he brings freedom. And it's in this same kind of tone that we get to the end of this section. Where Jesus finishes and he says, rise, let us go from here. Let's pray.